Hello, I'm Zeb Neuwirth and welcome to Creating New Healthcare, a podcast series for healthcare leaders who are interested in fresh perspectives, new ideas, and bold solutions on how to advance the creation of a customer-oriented, value-based, and humanistic system of health. The views I express on this podcast are solely my own and do not represent the views of any other person or organization. My friends, we're going to have a, a really interesting conversation, I think really pertinent to the moment in time we're in right now in the history of healthcare. The focus is going to be on public health, on community of health, on disparities of care, uh, as well as the frameworks we really need, including population health, to reframe uh, our healthcare system. Our guest today is Dr. Tony Slonim. Had the great fortune of having uh, Tony, Dr. Slonim, on this podcast a number of times. If you haven't heard those interviews, I would urge you. He describes some of his work really, really uh, impressive and important to learn from. Uh, Dr. Slonim is the president and chief executive officer of Renown Health in Reno, Nevada. Over the last few years, he and his colleagues have created one of the nation's most innovative and progressive health services organizations. Uh, he's nationally recognized thought leader. He's a board certified pediatric intensivist by training. Before joining Renown, he served uh, in executive leadership roles at Barnabas Health in New Jersey, the Carilion Clinic in Virginia, and at the Children's National Medical Center in D.C. He's also held hospital appointments at the National Institute of Health and at the Walter Reed Medical Center. Uh, Dr. Slonim has a really interesting background. He actually holds a diploma in nursing and was a nurse before he became a physician. He has also earned a master's as well as a doctorate in public health from George Washington. And he served for four years in the United States Public Health Service in Rockville, Maryland at the rank of Lieutenant Commander. So he is incredibly well-informed and incredibly experienced in the domains of public health, in the domains of clinical care, and in the domains of community health, as well as executive leadership and healthcare. And uh, so we're going to have a great conversation. This interview was recorded uh, just earlier today, a couple of hours ago. Uh, before we drop into the interview, I'm going to make a request of you, though. If you listen to this podcast and you find value in it, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues. So very specifically, here's what you can do. When you're done listening to the podcast or the next time you see one of uh, our social media graphics on LinkedIn or Twitter, I'd like you to share it with your colleagues or just blast it out on your LinkedIn account or with your professional listserv. You know, I have to say I'm super grateful to those of you who have been doing this over the past couple of months. Greatly appreciate you taking a moment to help spread the podcast and spread the word on creating a new healthcare. So without further ado, uh, here's the interview we just recorded earlier today with Dr. Tony Slonim, the CEO of Renown Healthcare. So Tony, thank you so much for joining me today in this conversation. I've been wanting to really speak with you for some time. And let's just jump in. In addition to being a highly trained physician and obviously being a CEO, you have a doctorate in public health and have spent many years as a public health expert and agent. And I just want to begin by asking you, how did your perspective as a physician change as a result of your going through the process of obtaining a doctorate in public health and then working in public health? And in the second part to that question is, can you explain to us what is 
the public health mindset, if there is such a thing? And, and how does it differ from a, a medical or clinical mindset or even from a community health mindset? I'm really curious to hear that. Sure, Zev, and thank you so much. It's always great to be together again. So um, I think a couple of things for me. As a physician, you know, we're often trained in the medical model where one patient, one family gets our attention and we learn to advocate for the best interests of that person or family. And a public health mindset is a little bit broader than that. It's about uh, how you can go about assuring the best interests of a population or a group. It doesn't have to be a whole population. It could be a community or a, a particular zip code. And for me, the public health mindset, just like there are tools in the toolbox for a medical mindset, uh, we take a history and physical, we order lab testing and diagnostic radiology testing, we form an impression and a plan, uh, and then we prescribe uh, certain therapeutics. There's similarly a public health toolbox that you can use to assure um, the public's health. They include things like assessment tools, like screening and how you go about identifying risks and rates and proportions at the community level, the fundamentals of epidemiology. Um, they go through um, how we craft an assessment, um, how we make sure that we're screening appropriate priority populations. And some of the things on the uh, you know, assessment planning side of that include public policy recommendations, new regulations that could put into place. So there's a toolbox in public health, just like there is for physicians in the medical model. And on the public health side, things that typically fall into that bucket include things like air quality, water quality, um, the, the fundamentals of living safely within your environment, so environmental lens. But what we know is that there's, you know, if COVID-19 pandemic has done anything for us, it's shown a light on just how, how there's so many other things that we need to consider within the context of public health. Our public health infrastructure is responsible for testing and screening. Our public health infrastructure is responsible for prevention and vac vaccination administration. Public health infrastructure is responsible for the epidemiology of the pandemic and understanding just where the rates and who is most likely to be affected and how those things go about. This is all fundamental public health work. Um, although, like I've said before, one of the challenges is we've not invested uh, as a nation or as uh, you know as states in public health because it's like insurance. You don't know you need it until you need it. And then it's too late to invest in it. You need it at, the, at your disposal. And I think that's where we've kind of lost some sight. I think the most important thing for listeners to remember is you cannot replace the medical model and the public health model. They're not interchangeable. They're different by design. And so I see here in our community that doctors want to get in the middle of the public health model and help people identify who gets administered vaccinations. No, doctor, not your job. We're in the middle of a public health pandemic. That's not how this works. The medical model gets left behind for the greater good. 
And that is, by definition, the value of the public health approach. I have never thought of or heard of public health described almost as a insurance policy, but um, I think that's a great analogy, you know, because I think a lot of people perhaps believe, you know, I don't need public health. You know, I've got uh, my doctor, I've got a hospital system here in the community. And what I hear you saying is that model is the medical model, the clinical model, which takes care of a part of what we all need. But there is a public health model and there is a need for it that is different and separate. And it sounds like we've taken that for granted and have seen what has happened as a result um, in this pandemic. What do you think about that? Does that drive with what you're saying? or? Yeah, I think that captures it. And I think I would say in addition, remember that all clinicians are educated in that kind of medical mindset, right? Nurses, doctors, because I call it a medical model, it doesn't mean it's necessarily tied to the discipline of medicine. Nursing clinicians, respiratory clinicians, pharmacists, all get brought up, raised, and educated within the context of it's your patient first and that family, right? It's that really intimate relationship. We even call it a relationship, the doctor-patient relationship. And public health is not that. And so we have to, I think, understanding the boundaries and is part one for understanding how we might go about addressing and improving health in the community more broadly. And one of the things I've heard you talk about in that public health mindset is the notion of scarcity and the notion of trade-offs. And so typically as physicians and in, or more broadly, as you said, in, in that medical mindset, we don't come up against that as much or we don't, that's just not part of what we do. You know, we see one patient at a time, one family at a time, and we give it our all. But the public health mindset is looking at, like you said, populations, communities, and so there is a factor in there, which is a little uncomfortable, I think, for most of us. I think that's true. And, and so, I, you know, particularly as physicians, where we hold to bear the responsibility, the oath to assure that we're advocating on behalf of those we're serving, when the context changes and the tension point is the difference between abundance and scarcity, that's when it's out of our hands. Because... You can't advocate effectively for this person and that person at the same time. And that's where many organizations and communities over the pandemic have struggled, I think, because the public health intervention for scarcity is crisis standards of care, where you allocate scarce resources in a way that assures their effective distribution. That's not something we're comfortable with here in the United States in a healthcare system that has been traditionally run from a context of abundance. And I think that has made people uncomfortable. What do I do when there's not enough ventilators? Well, that's a really good question, doctor, but it's not up to you. It's up for, to us, the broader us, to allocate those ventilators vis-a-vis -vis some standard of care with those most likely to benefit getting access. And I think that's an important differentiator. Yeah, no, that makes so much sense. You, you know, what's so interesting is this mindset sheds some light on some of the, I think some of the frustration uh, and finger pointing even, you know, uh, I've heard a lot of folks in the medical mindset say, well, you know, the states are, are changing and the federal government is changing the direction of how we're giving out vaccines. And, 
you know, it just seems to me that if you're in a medical mindset, that's hard to comprehend. If you're in a public health mindset, it's like, well, this is what we have to do. There are trade-offs. Someone's got to get the vaccine first. It seems like we were, we, because we didn't have this in place, um, we were scrambling. And so number one, I'm curious as to your critique of our public health system, uh, what's happened to it over the past few years, where is it now? And then I'm going to ask you the question of people can, I think, begin to understand why a public health mindset and a strong public health system is so important in a pandemic crisis. But then, you know, in the back of our minds, we might be thinking, well, once we get over this pandemic, and God willing, we will soon enough, can we go back to not having a public health system and a public health mindset after that, you know, until the next pandemic strikes, you know, 100 years from now? Part one is, is your critique of how the system is and was, and why it's important to have it even in the post-pandemic world. Yeah, great questions. Thank you, Zev, for asking. I think, let me start here with the critique. And I think, I think it's important to say, given how how much society at the moment seems to lack kindness, that this is not a criticism on the amazing men and women who are serving others in their public health roles. They are called to service in public health in in an important way. And so anything I might say, I say in the context of assuring that, hey, if we took a blank piece of paper, we would design the system differently It's not to say that the people in the system aren't doing their job. They're doing their job to the extent that this is the way the system operates. It's not about them. It's about the system that has its frailty. And I think with that backdrop, there's a couple of things I would say. One, it's an incredible uh, journey we've been on. You may remember this from your youth. I, I distinctly remember being, you know, five, six years old and, you know, in school, and the public health nurse gave us these immunizations with an air gun is the best way I can describe it, one child after another. And we just lined up in the gymnasium, and, you know, we we had public health nurses at the time. Where'd they go? (laughs) What, What happened to those people? I mean, I remember my local health district, uh, my, my local community, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey. I remember there was a place we called the public health department. You, it was there. You could see it. You could point at it. And in that building was everything from visiting nurses to uh, recreation of infectious diseases to, and there's a whole spectrum of things that went on there. Well, where'd they go? And how much can you count on that public infrastructure uh, to do all of the things that you need them to do, as we know, not only are, is our health affected by our genetics and our social standing and our social determinants, and it's also affected by the air quality, the water quality, and many other things that we hold dear to us that we usually consider in, in the framework of public health. And so, wow, I don't know where they went. It seems like we've been on a journey to extinction here, but for the most critical elements of public health. Tuberculosis screening. Well, I mean, we, we spend an enormous amount of resources doing that from a public health perspective, maybe because others don't want to, but wow, that's an interesting one, right? Sexually transmitted disease screening, front and center for the public health infrastructure. And when you start to consider the kinds of things that are 
that they've screened for routinely and where they're tracking numbers like oddball infectious diseases, flu rates, et cetera, it makes you ask the question about, well, huh, how did we evolve to this? And so I think it's not something that happened overnight. It's something where we cut back and we pulled back and we modified and we said that's not as important anymore. Maybe it started with visiting nurses. Maybe it went over to you know other elements of screening and and then evolved into how we keep records. But when you ask yourself, what's the modern public health department do today? And there are certifications to be a public health department. But the question is, how are they not acting in isolation, but integrating with other elements of the community, including health systems, which I'm very proud to run one, how are they integrating in a way that everybody uh, gets to enjoy better health in the jurisdiction in which that public health service is performing? And, and so why I say it that way is because the lack of investment is front and center for us. We are fortunate to be able to support the public health infrastructure because here at Renowned Health, we have an electronic medical record. And that's allowed us to provide that resource, that asset to the public health infrastructure and allocate vaccinations as they become available. We're not doing anything except helping on the scheduling side. It's a very administrative task, but without us, they'd have to do it on paper because they don't have the infrastructure. That's one example of what I mean by our failures to invest in the system of public health care. I knew there was a reason I really like you. I, I grew up in a small town in New Jersey too. And so just had to say that, throw in a plug for Jersey. You know, as you were talking about the, the funding uh, being pulled from, uh, you know, these things like air and water and soil quality, as you talk about the funding being pulled from uh, you know, screenings like TB and sexually transmitted diseases. I mean, my mind immediately goes to the notion of disparities in care and, you know, for, for vulnerable communities and vulnerable populations and poor communities and zip codes, these things are much, much more acute. And it just seems to me, it's again, it's another example of some of the clear and potentially intentional healthcare policymaking that takes resources away from these communities that need it the most. It wasn't planning to go in that direction, but it just, that was the first thought I had is that the pulling back of public health seems to me to affect some communities more than others. And we're talking about communities that are poor, that are black, uh, Latinx. Is that ring true for you or how do you put that together? Yeah, I think that's a really important point you're making. You often think about the public health frame as the floor, right? No one aspires for the things that we're talking to, to you know, good water quality. We just expect it. It's, it's a foundational element to how we deliver in, in society that conversation about health. And I think you're absolutely right. Some of our most vulnerable people in our communities, people of color, people who are struggling socioeconomically are the ones who are even vulnerable at the floor of what our expectations might be. Just take, for example, things that we know in our recent past, Flint, Michigan, and the, and the water quality there with lead, right? I mean, wow, we saw upfront and personal, the example play out in vulnerable communities and vulnerable people where 
I mean, they had to drink bottled water. They had to deliver bottled water because the infrastructure had failed to be invested in. And I think just like that, there's another important area we're likely to see and it evolve as, as the pandemic goes forward. And I think it needs a public health approach. I, I think it's the two issues, the failure to invest in public health broadly are emblematic in this, in, in the conditions of mental illness. And it's accentuated there. And prior to the pandemic, we had mental health crises around the nation where we knew there was disproportionate attention to people with mental illness. And now people who were coping, they may have been able to tolerate life on a daily basis. Now, after the pandemic, they're struggling even more. Right, and they can't cope anymore. And so there's a whole new body. You've moved up the pyramid, right? Before there was a whole cadre of people who were uh, affected with mental illness, and now there are people who might have been coping but can't cope any longer because of the pressures of the pandemic or the social circumstance or or the isolation or whatever else is contributing to their mental state being out of balance. And we have to pay attention to that because. It's the public health you know, frame that helps you screen, prevent, address those issues. You know, post-pandemic, what is the need for us to reinvest and rebuild uh, our American public health system? It's almost an oxymoron. Whose job is it? The fact that it's a public health system, it's not a renowned health system, it's a public health system. And so I think that's where... I'm struggling the most in terms of my role. We can't, in the healthcare enterprise of today, take on the burden of public health. It's too big a burden. I can't do it alone, not my place. So at least the way I've tried to make sense out of this, and I'll just walk you through my thinking. As you know, we've tried to differentiate for ourselves because it allows us to make sense out of it, health from healthcare. And healthcare is what you do for people when they're sick and injured. Health is how you keep them from needing healthcare. And so it's about mind, body, spirit, and a good place of well being. Okay. And if you're healthy, hey, your needs for health care should go down. Good. Well, we also know that there are infringements upon your health based on the social aspects of where you live. And now more than ever, we've come to realize that there are infringements on your health from the public perspective. Um, there's a virus running around all of our communities now. And so there are people who may choose to not protect themselves or others. Well, that infringes on my ability to remain healthy. I'm not talking anything right now about rights or you know, that's not the conversation. The conversation is simply about health. And so my ability to remain healthy depends on the behaviors of others. And wow, we haven't seen that before, at least for a hundred years, right? Usually my health is determined by my behaviors. That's why we did the Healthy Nevada project. We went out there and we said, if we identified for you and your DNA, the risks that might make you sick, you could change your behavior and stay healthy by avoiding those risks. In the context of the public health pandemic uh, or other challenges, 
it's not only your behavior, it's other behaviors that come into play. In the context of Flint, Michigan, it was elected officials who didn't have the information, didn't respond to the information, didn't look out for the public good. In the context of pandemic, it's people who wear masks, don't wear masks, wash their hands, come to work when they're sick. Your health is now dependent on others like never before. And I think that's a major juxtaposition from what we're used to dealing with. You know, I think that's such a really critical point where my mind jumped to was, as I understand it, one of the four major agendas for the Biden administration in terms of the Department of Health and Human Services is around equity of care, but also around climate change and climate change from a public health perspective. To your point, it's a great example of our health is already being compromised uh, by climate change. And it's obviously going to get worse as the climate continues to transform and heat up. And it will become, and you probably know more about this than I do by far, but it will become a major public health issue. And it is a function of exactly what you said, not my behavior, not any one individual's behavior, but the behavior of our society, the behavior of others who either do something about it or don't do something about it. And it extends to the government. It extends to corporations, you know, nationally and globally. So I've never thought about climate change as a public health issue, but it seems to me that it is. And I'm just curious how, if you've seen it that way or how you see it. Yeah, I have not. I, I like to frame on that because I think it is different uh, than I've contemplated, but it certainly makes sense because our collective decisions now are coming to bear on people's health in a way that we've never seen before. And I think one of the places where I think that there's analogous conversation, you know, is that we wrote a paper a few years ago, our team, about the difference between public health, population health, and community health. All are different. And it's not just word soup. I mean, they matter. It, it matters because they have different foci and they have different responsibilities and they have different uh, agendas. And I don't know that we've figured out how to work with them. So I say for our health system, certainly we own population health here at, at Renown as we go about making people healthier, addressing the, you know, the things that they may be at risk for, providing health and healthcare services for those things. And we own it, right? However you want to divide up the population, kids less than 18, seniors over 65, people with heart disease, people with cancer, we own pop health. Community health is a little bit different. It may not have to do as much with the health care aspects of that. It's got to do with how you keep people healthy and where in the community they live and the social determinants. And so we certainly have an important responsibility to contribute in that space and help and offer ideas and suggestions, but recognize we may not be the most expertise, have the most expertise there. It's other people who can address. And, and that's where I think your issues of climate change come in, equity comes in. And then finally, public health, which is, you know, the floor, which is what we've been talking about. Certainly we have, we've demonstrated a contribution during the pandemic to public health as a large health system, but uh, I'm not sure everyone sees it that way. P.S. I'm not sure we're necessarily welcomed uh, <laughs> by people who have authority to execute in the context of 
crisis, right? Public health infrastructure is in charge. That's how it goes, likely or not. And you have to, if you're following your command structure effectively, I used to be a commander in the public health service. You have to follow command structure to be effective. It's when individual doctor decides they're going to do it differently that you get in trouble. And so I'm very in tune and have our teams in tune to follow the command structure. It doesn't matter that you've only got X number of vaccines, give the vaccines you've been given to the people the way they tell you to give them. You do not interfere. P.S. That's really hard for an educated man, but it's, it has to be done in the context of a pandemic. Otherwise, you evolve to chaos. And it's a very militaristic mindset as well. I love, by the way, I love your differentiating population health, community health, and public health. And in your organization in Renown, you put into place, as you were saying before, you have a, a hospital system, you know, a healthcare system in place with both hospital and outpatient addressing diseases and, and traumas and things like that. You also have another part that you created, which I think is absolutely unique and brilliant, which is, as you said before, about health and about prevention. And would you label that other part, would that be the community health part? And I'd love you just to explain to the listeners a little bit more about that and how that's evolved. Yeah, we've been an organization that's been focused on population health now for some time. For me, that means the delivery of healthcare and keeping people healthy. Uh, again, we contribute to the community health conversation. Uh, on the keep people healthy side of population health, let me use examples because I think it'll be easier for the audience to understand. Uh, when we're doing population health for children, we want to make sure that they're getting their immunizations. We want to make sure that they have access to a hospital, God forbid, they get pneumonia, get hit by a car. They have adequate numbers of doctors, et cetera. But we also, from a community health perspective, have a responsibility to make sure those kids have bicycle helmets and don't get hit in the crosswalk walking to school. And so those are things where we go outside the walls of the health system to make a bigger impact on a population because we know it's essential for their health and well-being. You can't do that across the board necessarily, right? I'd like to make bigger investments in health because I think there's a, a potentially larger payoff downstream from that, but you're limited because you those programs don't drive revenue. We're in the healthcare business, unfortunately, which is still all about encounter-based care and re encounter-based reimbursement. Obviously, there's lots of things that have to change if we're going to be successful. But nonetheless, we think it's the right thing to do. Keep people out of the emergency room and, and get them care in settings that they like, like their home. So during the pandemic, we invested in our hospital and home strategy to make sure people could stay more safely in their living room. And hey, by the way, they might like it better. And we could still remotely monitor them and give them the care they needed. That's all good. Uh, but we put that under the population health intervention bucket not either community or public health. These are nuances here. This is one man's approach to try and make sense of the universe, but these are terms that often get used interchangeably, but have very different meanings. Well, I think it's important to have this differentiation because it seems to me that there are different priorities. There are different uh, aspects of health that uh, each of these, the population health, the medical, clinical, the community, the public. So it almost seems like we need to 
kind of reframe and reorganize our healthcare system to really be incorporating all of these in, in a bit more of a balanced way and in a bit more of a coordinated way. And so I know you've talked about this notion that one of the things we need to do for the future of healthcare is really have these multiple perspectives at the table because any one perspective is incomplete and inadequate. And so I'd like for you to speak to that. Sure. I think that it's so essential to be informed and we all have our own education and experiences that shine light on certain things that we're passionate about. I've become a real advocate uh, in the last couple of years for rural health care. Talk about a place where population health, community health, and public health come together. It's in the rural environment, right? And unless you spend time trying to educate yourself on what goes on in that arena, you miss the boat. There are people uh, who happen to live their lives in very physical labor-oriented uh, arenas where, you know, despite the fact that they hurt their back falling off a horse years ago when they were a kid, this is the environment they grew up on. And that's all they've got for their income. So today, whether their back hurts or not, they're getting back on that drawn horse and they're going to go about making sure they're able to provide for their family. It's a very proud mindset that you see in the rural environment, staunchly proud about what they, how they live and what they live for. And we call it the frontier. And the reason we call it the frontier is because uh, you wouldn't expect that people could necessarily be that independent. But that's what you see. And whether it's their health or their health care or whatever else you want to talk about, these people are 60, 90, couple hundred hours, minute, minutes away from the next closest hospital. So if they got sick, imagine what it would take to get them to fundamental levels of care. Whether the water is coming down off the mountain or whether what pipes it goes through, the public health infrastructure, very important way to frame your work out there. And when you talk about population health and disease prevention, chronic conditions run rampant in the rural environment. So I think, wow, there's an example where you need lots of people to solve the challenges. People who are informed, you can't do it without the people who live there. You've got to figure out what it will take to apply greater good. We know that this is an expansive problem of rural healthcare, meaning that there's broad, broad geographies with far fewer people that need to be addressed. But we also know their access points are closing. Hospitals in the rural environment are closing like crazy because they can't manage the fundamental financial challenges facing us in healthcare. So I use the rural context as an example because it's helped me to become educated about these different lenses and apply them in a context where it might make a difference. You know, another issue that comes to mind that I think would require us to think differently uh, and through multiple frames is the whole issue of, of social determinants of health. And we touched upon it a little bit before, but, you know, the notion that the vast majority of health outcomes are, are a function not of clinical care, but of all these other uh, social determinants, so-called social determinants like having uh, safe neighborhoods and having education and having employment, having housing and transportation, things like that. And so could you use that as an example? And obviously this is a huge problem, which is getting worse and, and we're seeing the impact it has in, in the pandemic, but it was there before and it's going to be there afterwards in a big way. I'm wondering 
how we need to have these multiple frames in mind as we approach that problem. I agree with you. I think that you know the social determinant conversation is certainly worse now than it was before. It's an important underpinning for health care. It's an important underpinning for population health. If you're busy trying to figure out where your next meal is coming from, you don't have the ability to go buy medications to keep your blood pressure under control. These are the realities that people face in their local communities, uh, not to mention the fact that homelessness has gone up. People's access to a variety of support services are now limited because the support services are overwhelmed. One of the things I've heard recently is a statement about leadership, and it was uh, from a playwright who was asked about voices and, you know, do we have enough voices in the mix? And it was an interesting response. And she said, we have lots of voices. The problem is we don't have a lot of leadership voices. And I thought about you, actually, when I heard that statement. What do you think about that in the context of healthcare? Yeah, I think that that's a great statement. And thank you for thinking about me. I mean, I, I can, here's one of the things I would say about that. Again, the cacophony doesn't mean that you necessarily come out better, right? We've become more familiar with making noise for the sake of making noise. I think true leadership is how you find things that you can address and organize yourself about around addressing it, right? It's not just about talking about it, it's about fixing it. And leaders need followers. There's a very important literature base on that conversation in leadership. And uh, sometimes on the course of the team, I'm not the leader for all things because I'm not the best person to lead them. But I can provide a strong voice to the leader on my team who is advocate, right? I always say, I think you know, uh, Zeb, that I was a nurse before medical school. And I say, I'm a much better advocate for nurses as a doctor than I ever could have been as a nurse. It's about having a voice that supports nursing and their leadership within the discipline that allows us to be stronger together. So uh, again, leadership for me is not necessarily about being out in front. Uh, It's about helping the voices to be heard, whether it's your voice or somebody else's voice, because yours may not always be the right one. And again, that's where we go back to the earlier conversation we had, which is all those lenses that need to come to bear to solve these very complex problems we're facing around population health, community health, and public health. Before we got on and we were chatting, you mentioned something about you've been thinking a lot about kindness lately. And I didn't know if that's in the context of health or healthcare or public health, but I'm curious, what do you see as the issue and what do you think we need to do about that? There's any number of places where you just see people not being kind to each other anymore. And whether that is, you know, I don't want to throw all social media out the window in one fell swoop, but whether it is the anonymity that people have come to understand where they do things because they'll never see or touch the person uh, that they're casting their stone at. I think it's a very dangerous precedent. And, you know, contemplating that post, contemplating that criticism, contemplating that barb that you're going to throw before you throw it, and just 
wondering if you would say the same thing in quite the same way if that person was sitting there in front of you or was a member of your family, I think is an important conversation for us all to have. But talk about a public health problem. It's not good for us to have running through our communities the level of unkindness, if that's a word. What's the word for unkindness? I can rise above it in many ways, but it's, it hurts. And there are people who are the victims of, of unkind statements and actions who may not be able to cope. And for them, it's another level of bullying. It's another level of mental suppression. It's another level of, you don't know until you've walked in that person's shoes what they're dealing with. And why do you need to, when they're down, jump on top of them and stomp them down more? That's not who we are. But I'm afraid it's who we're becoming. And it needs a louder voice to be able to make sure that we're standing up for the right things. I often say, you've heard me say before, everything I need to know about living my life, I learned by the time I was five from my grandma. And wow, I just need grandma to go tell everybody else who's being so rude and unkind. What it is that they need to run their lives? Because it's really not complicated. You know, Zeb, I would say that in, in, as we close, you know, one of the things we know well and have learned a long time ago about the physiologic challenges that come with stress, good stress or bad stress. You can get married, have a baby, have a grandchild. You could be living, you get a new job, living your life to the fullest in a good way and be, have a physiological response to stress. And what we know is certainly when things are going not so well, financial strain, difficulty, lose your job, um, get divorced, someone dies who's close to you, those are stressors that affect you physiologically in a similar way, but are negative. And what we see through a lack of kindness is that the stress that comes from the environment you're surrounding yourselves in, and now it's become a really big environment, right, nationwide, that leads to stress that none of us can put our fingers on. We're isolated. We don't have the support mechanisms we may have had at, in a variety of different ways, and the lack of kindness adds to that physiologic strain that we feel, we experience, we don't get vacations, we don't get to relieve the strain quite the same way. And I think it's a real health issue. As we're talking about it and thinking about it, it really, it makes so much sense. You know, I think there's a conversation to be had about the role of kindness in the conversation around our public health, literally our public health and uh, our community health. And to your point, you know, as the stressors mount, it seems to me that, you know, part of the antidote is kindness. Part of the intervention is kindness. Uh, and it's harder because uh, as everyone's under stress, it's, it's harder to be kind, I think. Yeah, you know, Dr. Murthy, M-U-R-C-H-Y, the interim surgeon general talks a lot about kindness as a public health crisis. And he does a really nice job of laying out why it's so important. Tony, it's such a, it's such a pleasure and a privilege speaking with you. Is there any final word or any final thought you'd like to share with folks? Um, well, first, always thank you, Zeb, because it's so great to be with you and, and chat. Uh, and second, hope our listeners will be kind to everyone they encounter today because it matters. Uh, you've got me thinking about it quite a bit. So thank you, Tony, again, such a pleasure. And I hope we get a chance to talk soon. Thank you, Zeb. 
So friends and colleagues, uh, that was the interview I recorded a little bit earlier today with Dr. Tony Slonim. I want to thank him again today. I have to say that um, I didn't anticipate some of the direction that uh, the interview went, uh, specifically around this issue of kindness. Uh, He mentioned it briefly before we started recording. I just thought it was important for some reason. I think, uh, again, the moment we're in right now where everyone's under such tremendous stress, those in healthcare across the country, across the globe. And I do think there's something important about this notion of kindness. And along those lines, as I do every episode, I'd like to conclude by uh, sharing my appreciation, my gratitude, thanking all of you out there who are doing the hard work each and every day of taking care of patients, or those of you who are supporting those who are taking care of patients, Again, I and we truly appreciate you for what you do, recognize how critically important your work is to individuals, families, communities, and our society. This is Zeb Newworth. I'm creating a new healthcare. My friends, until next time, be safe and be well.